Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. Patient paid fees in the US have exploded from 5% of healthcare provider revenue in the early 2000s to over 35% nowadays. Additionally, only 25 to 35% of those out-of-pocket expenses are actually getting paid, resulting in a massive $330 billion revolving balance in annual unpaid medical bills. Perhaps more importantly, research shows that many lower and moderate income people faced with out-of-pocket healthcare expenditures are choosing to defer care, which results in suboptimal clinical outcomes and poorer public health. Our guest today is Itzik Cohen, CEO and co-founder of Payson, a transformative healthcare fintech lender. A former professional athlete and three-time startup founder, Itzik had first-hand experience with healthcare costs when he was diagnosed with cancer in the early 2000s. Despite good insurance coverage, Itzik was faced with $40,000 of out-of-pocket medical expenses after his treatment and recovery. While he was fortunate to have the means to pay these bills, he knew that most Americans were in a very different position. From these experiences, Itzik had a strong hunch that a payment solution could make a huge difference in making healthcare accessible. And in 2019, he founded Payzen. Payzen leverages AI, machine learning, and highly specific data sources to offer healthcare patients a personalized payment plan so they can affordably pay for the care they need. It works with hospitals, health systems, and large physician groups to underwrite personalized healthcare payment plans that can be used at any time for any health-related expense. Payzen approves 100% of applicants and never charges patients interest or fees. Providers improve on their collection rate with accelerated cash flow, while their patients get affordable care and peace of mind. Payzen last raised $20 million in its Series B round, led by Seven Wire Ventures, and received $200 million credit facility from Viola Credit. A serial entrepreneur, Itzik has held several senior executive leadership positions. Recently, as the CEO of Beyond Finance, the chief business officer for Prosper Marketplace, and founder and CEO of Clipson. Itzik started off his career as a professional basketball player playing for Maccabi Tel Aviv, a five-time EuroLeague champion. In this insightful episode, we discuss key takeaways from two decades in Silicon Valley, management principles for high-growth companies, and the nuances of consumer credit risk underwriting. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I was born in Israel, in Jerusalem, kind of kid. I was very shy, very tall. I'm now 6'8", or for the ones who are in the metric system, 2 meter and 4 centimeters. So I was a very, I was a giant of a kid from day one. And I was always very shy because I was tall. I think I wasn't trying to, I was trying to hide in a way. But my passions were really... Fiction, science fiction, technology, a lot of fantasy, engineering from very young age, very much into Lego, and reading about science. And I was kind of a geek, I guess you could say. I mean, I um, wasn't a big athlete until the age of 11, where my school coach was trying to convince me to play basketball because I was so tall. So. It didn't start from a passion for basketball. It started from being tall and utilizing that for basketball. But turns out I was pretty good. And that evolved into a professional basketball career in the EuroLeague. Played in the Israeli national team for 
I think I have 82 international games, European championships, et cetera, in the national team, and also played six years in Maccabi Tel Aviv, which is one of the top teams in Europe. It was a great experience because from a very shy kid, it puts you in the limelight, puts you in front of media, and whether you like it or not, if you want to be successful, you're going to have to be good under pressure, you know, on stage. So it definitely changed me as a person, became more confident. And the one thing that was very consistent with me is that my passion for technology, computers, science fiction did not change even throughout my basketball career. The first moment I could, I jumped ship in a way from basketball, relatively in a young age. By the age of 25, I already quit basketball and joined the technology space very early on. I studied computer science and math. And again, basketball allowed me to get a lot of free time because you work hard, but you're not working nine to five. So they allowed me to go to school while I was playing basketball. And yeah, that's how my technology career has started. It started in Israel at uh, the first ISP in Israel and then continued to Silicon Valley. So, so much to unpack here. Fascinating. Also, just wanted to ask, so since you were born in Israel, did you have to do the mandatory military service with the IDF or were you able to skip that? No, I did. At the time, I was considered to be a special case because I was an athlete and I represented the country in international games. So I was able to get an easier service, but I did, I still served for three years and served in the Israeli Air Force. Awesome. And so talk to many founders who are ex-athletes. I mean, from where I sit, I see both that investor in the podcast also. It's really interesting because you start seeing these patterns emerging, right? One is there's definitely immigration or moving around a lot, like army brats, oil brats, athleticism, right? Sports, team sports, especially. The ability to perform under pressure. And when you say perform, it's on the court, but off court as well, right? To your point. And, and you see it, you and I are, are huge Formula One fans. You look at the profession today, how those drivers actually have to be on as part of their contract. They have to be on, on and off track and are very much scrutinized in all aspects. So the ability mentally to the level of resilience is probably something you developed at an early age. You know, I would think also three years in the IDF probably helped with that. But also, basketball is a team sport. What position did you play, by the way? I played the power forward. Yeah, I mean, I was tall and strong, but I wasn't tall enough to be a center. So I was uh, playing a number four power forward. But I am in total agreement with you. I think that people who play team sports, doesn't have to be professional, by the way. It can be in uh, college or any other capacity and grew up playing team sports. I find them to be amazing executives. And I think when you really dive deeper into that, it, this interplay of personal performance and team dynamics is extremely unique in a team sport because essentially you recognize that you cannot do it alone, that there is a role for each one to perform if the team is going to win. You recognize some roles in, in the team, meaning there's a coach, right? So if you think of a CEO as a coach and you think of uh, 
different roles in the C-suite. People who played sports understand that dynamic. So yes, they're trying to obviously better themselves and promote themselves and try to make the coach like them so they can play them more in a way, in an executive capacity, but also relying on your teammates or working together as a team is a huge component of the success of any company. So I think that interplay in this dynamic is very helpful if the coach is using the team wisely and recruit the right team. Obviously, that the having a bench in a way for the C-suite or deep enough bench when it comes to promoting from within is a very important aspect you can see as well in uh, team sports as well. So I totally agree. I think that is very helpful. When it comes to just touching on the military service, for me, some players in team sports, you know, they work hard, but, you know, some of them have just amazing talent and doesn't require them to work very hard. That was my case. I wasn't a very hard worker until I made it to the military, which discipline is a very big component. And I think that was kind of a finishing school for me when it comes to character. You learn discipline, you learn character, you learn values that are also very important. And I carried it with me these lessons and this, all of those learnings today, right? And I think that you're right, it's kind of completing the picture. Team sports, some military service, or any type of service that requires some commitment on your part or volunteering on your part is very helpful. Yeah. I mean, the way I think about sports, and I never served, but I have friends who have. And so I would never dare extrapolating because I don't really know what it is, but I'm drawing from conversations and readings as well. Leadership is really three things it's this level of accountability that builds, that you put yourself behind the collective, right? It's saying the collective is more important and there's an accountability. Someone's trusting you to do something and you've got their back, which means if you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it. Same thing on the basketball court. And I want to assume same thing in the military as well. So that's one thing. Second is the ability to think and operate under a lot of pressure. And again, whether it's, again, military sports, again, Formula One, not to keep drawing back, I think what sets apart a Verstappen or Hamilton or some of these top drivers is their ability when things get really dicey to keep a cool head and keep performing. And then the third thing is, it's the discipline, right? It's just Mike Tyson, right? Like learn to love the things you hate to do to become stronger and a better athlete right? It's the essence of discipline is just knowing that the reward in the form of wins is going to come from training, right? And there's no skipping that no matter how talented you are. So I think that's really important. And I love talking about this and again, see some real patterns emerging and people have gone and, and built and, and run companies. So in your case, you quit basketball, you go work in technology, work for an ISP. What's the career progression, right? Because it seems like you have almost an innate ability. I mean, I know it took some years, so it's easy to gloss over it, but quickly you rose through ranks, right? Executive leadership. So talk to us a little bit about how you ended up at WebEx and in pretty senior roles and what led to that and then taking on even the top leadership position in follow-on roles. So it's interesting because I started from the technical side and ended up being on the business side. 
And that was a realization of mine that I bring to the table, at least when I worked for the ISP that I did, I started from the technical side, the engineer, engineering side. And very quickly, I was gravitating towards sales and business. And that was really exciting to me. I think that just from my own perspective, and it could be different for other people, closing a deal is like winning. And when you're an athlete, I'm very competitive as a person with myself and anything that I do. I just cannot stand losing in anything. And the high of a win is something that I really missed when I was working in technology on the technical side. And I was dragged into closing deals back in Israel, by the way, because of my, I guess, fame. I was known as a basketball player and people were still fans. It was really soon after I quit basketball, so I was still had a name for myself. And I realized that cultivating relationships, being creative with business and trying to negotiate, create some kind of a win-win is something that I'm pretty good at. And that was a lot more exciting to me than whatever I was doing on the technical side. So it was a very natural and gradual progression and departure from the technical side into the business side. Once I made it to the U.S., I knew that my path is not on the technical side. I was not going to be a developer. What excites me and what I'm actually good at or better than being a developer is business development, creating new idea, business ideas, partnerships, products, initiatives, using a lot of my creativity, thinking outside of the box thinking, and of course, using my technical knowledge to connect the dots and create new things that are, from a business perspective, very beneficial to the company or the partnerships I was trying to create. So this is how I got to WebEx. I was very fortunate. And of course, it's not just capabilities, also time and luck. I was able to meet the CEO of WebEx very early on. We had a very good connection from day one, from the first moment we met. And it was a very natural way for us to agree right there and then that we should work together. And I bought into the idea. He was a great sales guy and quite frankly, made me the CEO that I am today. I saw him reporting to him from the first days of WebEx when it comes to raising money, growth pains, challenges, being, how lonely it is to be at the top and what it means to lead and the challenges. And that made me the CEO that I am today. I mean, quite frankly, it's not something you can learn or anything can prepare you to. You have to do it. And yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for my time in WebEx, there's, I don't see myself being the CEO that I am today, especially under Subra IR, that's his name, the founder of WebEx. Under his leadership, I learned quite a bit. And I was able to add value. Obviously, I was advising and I was listened to, which was also great. I was allowed to be creative and be heard. So yeah, I mean, I'm very fortunate to have uh, been in this position and uh, the time. It was a very exciting time. It was the dot-com era. It was the late 90s, obviously. There was a lot of things that are happening that were great and a lot of things that were not so great. And navigating through that time frame and still be successful taught me a lot. And actually, these are things I'm taking today. I mean, if it wasn't for 
Web access conservatism and sticking to first principles and about being profitable and making sense of unit economics very early, the company would not have survived. I could say the same thing about Payson. I mean, I know I'm fast forwarding here, but the reason Payson exists today is because we are very disciplined as a team. And I'm taking that lesson with me to every business that I'm involved with. It's fascinating to go back to these years. I mean, I started my career on the tail end of that, but I have vivid memories of that year, the end of that era. And certainly as a college kid, witnessing it somewhat from the outside. What are your key takeaways from, you know, someone like Subrar? Like what you say, you've carried this over and it helps you on a daily basis. If you had to, for listeners, like boil it down to, you said good listener to you. You saw some of the aspects of the role that you know you became familiar with just watching him but what are your key operational and leadership takeaways i think that one need to recognize that that was his first ceo job as well right and he was learning on the job as well i mean, looking back i mean obviously everybody makes mistakes he did too but i think that having an honest reflection about those things, learning from them, not having too much ego about it, and moving on is something that I was fascinated to see how honest he was with himself and what he was good at, what he was not good at, what he needs to improve, and some of the challenges about the decisions he made about people, about business decisions, or strategy decisions. The other thing that I recognized about him very early on is that. He was very smart to understand what he's good at and what he's not good at. And he built a team to augment himself, right? So essentially, how do you not bring another Subra to the team? You actually bring people who are complementing you in the best way possible, knowing your gaps, right? Or what the company needs that you will, not, will just not do very well. And I think that's one of the principles that I took with me when I started Payson is choosing my co-founding team. I mean, I have two amazing co-founders that are extremely different than me when it comes to what their strengths are professionally, but we have a very similar core set of values. And the friendship and the appreciation for each other are there, but we're very different with the things that we're good at. And I found this is something that I learned looking at him. I mean, he built a team. It wasn't very easy. Hiring is never an easy thing. You make a lot of mistakes. I always think that at the end of the day, as hard as you'll try, hiring is 50-50, right? I mean, I could never get better than this, even looking bad at my 30-year career. But recognizing that when you made a mistake quickly and moving on very quickly. So hire fast, fire fast. If it's not working, that's another thing I learned. So yeah, I mean, it was great finishing school for me to kind of look at someone being very close to him and learning a lot. So obviously I owe him a lot of my, a lot of the things that I'm doing today. First-hand experience of looking at him struggling and going through all these stages. I mean, you need to understand that during that time when the dot-com bust happened, it wasn't very easy for any CEO. So then you have September 11, obviously, was a big moment in our time. 
So if there's another thing that is pretty consistent, when you're a CEO, you realize how crazy the world is around you and how major events in the world are going to keep throwing stuff at you. Instability, pandemics, different types of cycles in the economy. You think it's very unique, but essentially every CEO goes through that because these are not things you, have, you can control, but if you're sticking to your principles and you're sticking to the discipline that you're establishing in the company, you're maximizing your chances of success. And I think, again, I owe that the success of Payson to those principles. I mean, being disciplined, don't overspend, think about unit economics, think about achieving milestones before you go raise another round. These are the things. And of course, choosing the right investors is another key aspect here. So many great tenets. And I want to, again, unpack some of these. And just to summarize what you said, so much of it resonates with me. First thing is check your ego at the door. It's probably something you learn pretty quickly, again, in sports or in the military. It's, there's a difference between being competitive or having a strong personality and ego. Those are two different things, right? And understanding that a team that succeeds is one that shares value and purpose, but has highly non-overlapping skills, to your point, right? And that's a topic that I'm such a fan of because so many time and again, the good teams, the founding teams that work are the ones that, whether consciously or subconsciously, they do the work up front to assess the non-overlap and making sure that they're really complementing each other. Like, as simple as, I'll tell you, any day, like my business partner and I, like I know what our psychometrics tests are. Empirically, we knew it back because I've known him since college or other people I've partnered with. There are actually straightforward ways to assess that, right? Other than the empirical, like testing the grounds is making sure that you have compatible and non-overlapping personalities. Because going back to what you said about your CEO at the time, that time and again, those CEOs that fail actually want to do everything. They want to see their name on everything. They don't actually understand that their role is set the strategy, hire, retain the best to execute the strategy, and then deliver financial returns to stakeholders. And in order to do that, you simply can't do. And by the way, you shouldn't because I think the skills to be a CEO are very different than those to be a good individual contributor or a good executive in one area. Some get to graduate to that and oftentimes, but look, a great CFO is a great CFO, right? And so as CEO, you shouldn't try to be as good as your, you can understand everything that's going on. You can have great interaction with your CFO, but what you want is you want a rock star in that role. It's a very timely comment because I'm actually in a search right now for a CFO, but even a great CFO has a lot of flavors, right? I mean, you can have the accountant CFO and you can have the capital markets type CFO. It's depending on your business, you can find flavors of that. But you're right. I mean, essentially having non-overlapping skill sets, but one unifying set of values and a mission and a purpose for a company that you keep reinforcing. And again, it's interesting. I just came out of our annual C-suite offsite planning 2024. And it's incredible how aligned, when you're doing the right thing, 
and you're hiring based on, first of all, do you believe in the mission? Do you understand the values of this company? What are we trying to accomplish? You understand this is not, we're not building a quick exit here. I'm building a company that I'd like to be around in the next 50 years. That's our vision. And you want people who subscribe to that and are passionate about this because it's not going to be in your way down the road. I don't want somebody who's going to be impatient. When are we going to exit? When are we going? I mean, we're going to exit when the business is, when it's going to be better for the business or shareholders. But I just don't need that kind of impatience or expectations from my C-suite because it's going to resonate with the rest of the team, right? I mean, we have people to lead as well. So it's important. 100%. It sounds like what you're describing is also part of the exercise of going through ongoing codification of vision to values, right? Jeff Weiner, LinkedIn, there's, there's a whole blueprint and it, it actually works of like codifying the corporate culture, making sure that everyone understands it. And it sounds like you got that early on. Whatever shape or form, I think you see the success stories. There's a lot of similarities. The challenge I see with that is that our vision is growing all the time and it's evolving because we are in a very nascent market that has so much to fix. Healthcare is broken in so many different ways and payments and affordability in healthcare is even worse. But so, you know, we're growing our scope and our TAM as we increase the set of solutions we have in the market. And the more we learn, the more we see that it's growing. But there's one fundamental thing we cannot change, which is our mission. And that mission, it doesn't matter how big the business is going to be or how many more things we're going to do. Our mission is to bring financial health to healthcare. And I found that that is something that we have now from day one. We, we didn't change it. No matter how much the business has changed and how fast we grew, and we now have more than one product in the market, and we're going to have a third one next year. It's never going to change our mission. It's going to change potentially the scope or the value we communicate to our customers and to patients, but the mission is really what drives us. No, and I'm looking forward to diving into that. So between WebEx, what happens next? Like walk us through the, the other key steps along the way, because eventually you stepped up to a CEO role, right, right after that. Yeah, so I... um Essentially, WebEx was acquired by Cisco. I did not continue there. And I um, started a small company that did okay, but it was supposed to be, it was kind of the watch parties before it was popular. It was basically a, an idea that we had in WebEx. If you can think about it, WebEx was doing real-time communications over video. And I thought that with more streaming video, you can actually add more real-time interaction over the video, kind of like a way for people to vote while they watch videos, interact, etc. We did very well during the 2008 elections, sentiment meters, but you know, that company did not end up being the, a big company, right? Essentially, we were creating tools for the media industry and it was a lesson, but it wasn't a big outcome for anyone, quite frankly. So, but very quickly, I was approached and I was fascinated with the disruption that's going, is happening in fintech. And I joined uh, Prosper Marketplace. At the time, it was the fintech 1.0. I joined as uh, chief business officer. 
to Prosper Marketplace, which was competing with Lending Club and SoFi and, and Prosper is still around I and mean, still doing well. And the company was focusing on expanding credit using a marketplace approach. We did very well. We grew very fast. Uh, the whole industry grew very fast and we learned quite a bit. I mean, it was kind of a rudimentary fintech model of uh, having investors, you know, who invest in personal loans. You know, Prosper was pricing, underwriting and servicing those loans and marketing and the investors were getting the yield. And it was a decent time. Company did well, like I said. I mean, you can see that there are several public companies that are still operating in that model. But in 2016, I left the company and together with the investors decided to really disrupt the debt settlement space. And the idea was debt settlement, I don't know how well you're familiar with that market. Debt settlement essentially is Americans have a lot of consumer debt, especially now with high interest rates. A lot of people are struggling to pay their credit card bills and personal loans bills and the rest of their obligations. And I guess if you don't want to file for bankruptcy, you have a way for enrolling into a debt settlement plan that essentially that company will negotiate your debts with your creditors. I thought that this whole process is have a lot of friction. It's a really bad user experience. It kills people's credit. I thought it was a more automated way to do this. And that was kind of the approach with Beyond Finance, the company that I started. We learned the business, we built an amazing company, and the idea was, you know, let's run the company for two years and then two years after start disrupting this industry with technology. We were able to build what is now a fantastic company. I think Beyond Finance is one of the top debt settlement companies in the United States, but innovating in that space was proven to be much more difficult than I expected. And you're still basically seeing that business still running with mostly call centers, mostly manual work that of negotiating with creditors. The friction in the between the creditor and the consumer is still very bad. It still hurts people's credit scores when they go through that. I mean, it's a pretty bad user experience, I guess, and that's what I was trying to solve. I wasn't able to solve that problem, but obviously Beyond Finance is a very successful company. I, myself, as a technology person, a product person, did not see myself as running a company that's basically a big call center and decided to move on from that. I uh, did well. company is doing well, so it's fine. It's just not for me. But one of the things, and again, this is how things are progressing. Um, one of the things that I noticed towards the end of my time at uh, Beyond Finance was you know, one of the fastest growing type of debt we were enrolling in our programs was medical debt. And it was growing faster than many other types of debt, including credit cards, including personal loans. And after I left Beyond Finance, I decided to dive into it. And only then I was flabbergasted by the sheer size of the problem and the fact that there's really no technology-based solutions to solve the affordability problem in healthcare. So that was the genesis to Payzen. Essentially, it was a very basic idea of here's the problem, here's how we're going to solve it, and here's the team to do it kind of thing. And uh, we were able to raise a seed funding very quickly from investors. 
And that's how Paysim began. That was towards the end of exactly four years ago this month. Yeah, so we have a very clear thesis here in terms of, and it's obvious that it stems from really knowing that market, right? And I always say it's very important to start with the customer, with the pain point, understand where those structural pain points exist. And so you really outline this, obviously, a, a big market, clear problem, and an attempt to bring a solution to that, which we're going to elaborate on here, and a problem that highlights how broken the availability and the affordability of healthcare in the U.S. is. Now, you obviously, by that point, the assumption is you've done fairly well with a career in Silicon Valley. How do you start PayZen? Do you start on your own dime? Do you immediately line up some investors to get going? What was the initial period? And then ultimately, this is a balance sheet business, right? So for listeners trying to understand, fintech means a lot of different things. In this particular context, you are really funneling capital into some very specific areas that need it. And so there's not only a requirement to have working capital in the form of equity to to build, right? You know, you're very keen on technology. You're very keen on automation. You said you didn't want to be running a call center. You wanted to run a technology company. Exactly. So that takes, obviously, capital to pay for development, to pay for engineers. And it also takes balance sheet in that sense, whether it's your own or identifying partners that can warehouse the risk. Talk to us a little bit about the capital formation. So before we go there, let's start. You asked about how do you get started? And you get started by confirming that there is a problem, that believing that you can solve that problem, or at least a part of the problem, and that there's a reasonable chance that you'll be able to find product market fit with your idea, right? And then you need to find the right team to get started with and convince them that there's something there and make sure that they are as bought in as you are. And so that's where myself and my co-founders spent a lot of time together. They all had their own independent view, but we all came together uh, to the same conclusion. Wow, we thought we saw big markets before. Let me tell you, we're talking about the biggest market in the United States economy. Healthcare is the biggest market when it comes to as part of GDP. It's, there's nothing bigger than that. And the size of the problem is just staggering. So we started with forming a team, starting a company. We did not raise capital yet. And then doing some work without investment on our own dime. And when we agreed that it's time to raise, then we did that. And quite frankly, we were very fortunate. Again, when you have enough track record and you know enough about investors, I mean, sometimes getting a seed is not a big deal, right? Or it's not as hard. And I was very fortunate. We didn't even have a name for a company. We called it Nuco. It was an 11-slide deck. Essentially, here's the problem. Here's the size of the problem. Here's how we're going to solve it. And this is why we're the right team for it. And we got a term sheet. So it was relatively frictionless when it comes to getting seed funding. And that allowed us to really take our idea to the next level. But 
The other thing we needed to find is more healthcare expertise because all of us had great fintech experience, not healthcare experience. And this is where we actually were very lucky to find a board member that joined, believed in us, believed in the idea, believed it was the right thing to do, and taught us a lot in the early days about healthcare, rev cycle management, the problems in this industry. And yeah, I mean, we could not have done it without learning quite a bit and very fast about healthcare. But just to frame, because you talk about balance sheet and not, before we get there, let's talk about the size of the problem. So when you think about it, I'm not talking about, I mean, most people have insurance, right? Especially after the Affordable Care Act, most people in the United States are covered with some form of insurance. The problem is that insurance these days, most insurance plans or healthcare plans have some deductible or very fast-growing patient out-of-pocket responsibility that is growing quite fast. I mean, it's called the consumerization of healthcare, but there's a major shift of payment responsibility from the insurance companies, the payers, to the patient. And it comes in the form of high deductibles, co-insurance, co-pays. I mean, you call it whatever you want to call it, but essentially, these are things patients need to pay as part of their healthcare. Average family in the United States last year was about $4,000 a year out of pocket. That is after insurance. So when you think about it, every year in the United States, hospitals are billing patients after insurance about $430 billion. It's insane how big this is. $430 billion are being billed to patients every year after insurance. 20%, 80 billion approximately, are being paid in full. The rest need some help. This is where pays in comes in. We are not touching the 80 billion or 20% of that big number that will pay in full and can afford it, and that's fine. We're addressing the th approximately $360 billion that needs some sort of help. And now it brings me back to your question before, is everything we do based on balance sheet, some of it is, some of it is not. Because not all problems in healthcare affordability require a payment plan or an access card, which is the two products we have. Some of them require automation. Some of them require different types of solutions that don't require a balance sheet. So Payson is creating some balance sheet-based revenues and some that are not, but it's all transaction-based revenues. Hopefully that answered your question. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to diving in even more. And it's such a fascinating area. And to your point, that the scale is just staggering in size. So today, and again for listeners, and you talk about, and we have chatted about this in our calls leading up to this, where you outlined what you started with and what you're bringing to the table as a new set of offerings. So like summarize, now that you've given a broad top-down view of the problem, the scale, and the fact that some revenue streams are, despite being transactional, are going to be balance sheet driven, some not, describe to us in layman terms exactly what the products are and how they're solving for the problems that are out there. Yeah, so essentially, let's start from what it's all based on. Everything we do is based on data. So mm -hmm. we are 
we're building a massive data asset, by the way, that is helpful to us because it creates a not only a, a moat, but also an amazing flywheel for us. But we're getting, we're integrated into our providers who are our customers. We're integrated into the EMR system. Essentially, we're getting a flow of data from them about their patients. We take that data and we enrich this data with a lot of financial attributes, which allow us to build models. So like I said before, there's 20% of people who don't need help. So we're not addressing them at all. But the rest, I mean, we're trying to understand what are their problems and what kind of solution do you think we should offer them or our models, predictive models needs to kind of offer them. Some people, about 15 to 20% of people will pay their bill if you proactively offer them a way to break that big bill into, payment, into multiple payments. How long are those payments? These are underwriting decisions that we do instantly. So essentially, we got started by addressing the most common problem in healthcare. It's an experience we all know. You went to the doctor, you did some kind of a procedure or exam or a test or something. Your insurance paid something and 30 days later, around 30 days later, you have some kind of a bill in the mail or in an email that says your insurance paid X, U, O, Y. And we're addressing that Y with a payment plan that has, we always say yes to people, so we never decline anyone from paying their bill using the patient technology. So we say yes to 100% of patients, and we never charge interest or fees from the patient ever. So again, our goal is to not make healthcare more expensive by adding interest to the problem. So essentially, if somebody wants to pay their bill and needs uh, payments or a payment term to pay it over time, Make sure that you underwrite them to their ability to pay and enroll them into a payment plan that they can actually afford. That is the first product we had. Once we enroll the patient, we also offer the provider a form of financing. It's not mandatory, although all providers want it because they're all struggling with cash flow. And we finance those assets on day one, which is have to do with our balance sheet. And we have a, obviously a warehouse and that's how it works. So we have a credit warehouse, and that's how we finance those assets. That is essentially our initial product. Very quickly, we realized that affordability conversations are occurring now before you even do a procedure, which kind of leads to another problem, which is access to healthcare. A lot of people need to do some kind of a procedure. Because of price transparency, providers are now required to give you some kind of an estimate on your out-of-pocket expense. People get a sticker shock and they defer their cares. I can't afford it, so I'm not going to do this. It's bad for the patient for their health. It's bad for the provider because they're doing less procedures and they need to do procedures in order to continue surviving, right? So the next product was a product that was designed to address affordability conversations pre-care. That means that when you give someone an estimate on their out-of-pocket expense, you also offer them a way to afford that care by giving them a card that essentially is approved by, everybody is approved. So we maintain the North Star of letting anybody who wants to pay in, and again, not charge interest or fees no matter who it is. So essentially we're maintaining that mission and every swipe on that card is turned into a payment plan you can afford. So we maintain the same platform to maintain the same type of promise here with financing, et cetera, but 
It's designed for pre-care conversations and longer care cycles because people keep using that card if their care is taking longer and they need they have multiple bills to pay for that particular cycle. So that was our second product. That product just came out of Pilot about two months ago, a month and a half ago. It's growing very fast. There's a lot of demand for this product because of the regulatory dynamics of uh, price transparency. And we're working through a waiting list now of providers who really want that card. So we're implementing them very fast. But we're not stopping. And our next product, which is basically financial assistance underwriting, is not going to be based on balance sheet. It's going to be based on a transaction fee. But essentially, we are going to process financial assistance forms for patients, proving that they're meeting charity care criteria for the provider without filling paper forms, without doing anything that is manual, without spending time on the phone. Again, bringing the billing experience in healthcare to the e-commerce expectation, right? Essentially, that's what we're trying to see here, that the, the, the expectations of patients who are transact on e-commerce all the time is that experience in healthcare should be the same. Let it be digital. Let it be embedded. Let it be the checkout experience needs to be smooth, quickly, quick, and efficient. And we're trying to address all of those affordability problems with solutions that are digital, that are completely embedded, that are 100% transparent to the patient and to the provider. So this is, for example, the last one I mentioned is going to be a non-balance sheet type of product, but again, solving the same problem, affordability. Yeah, no, and, and clearly a multifaceted problem. So going back to the former credit guy, I'm thinking about the mechanics here. So you're not charging interest, i.e. cost of capital plus expected conditional default probability. Risk, yeah. And recovery on those assets, right? So you're facing, you've got payment plans issued to consumers, people who receive care, and the providers, you turn around, you provide them liquidity, you provide them capital, presumably with a haircut, right? Yes. Got it. And that haircut, what they like about our haircut is that we price each unit, each individual, individually. So we have a dynamic risk pricing that is instant, and each one of our payment plans is uniquely priced based on the attributes of that particular use use case. And at the end of the day, you get some kind of an average yield to a provider. And providers like it because it's fair. I mean, essentially, they're, they understand how we work, they understand the attributes, they understand how we price risk, and they get a fair financing charge all the time. And that, the other thing is that is nice here is that we're fully integrated into their system. So essentially, once someone enrolls into our payment, into our product, our payment plan, we know it's tagged in their system automatically as paid. If there's financing involved, it's already been tagged as reconciled with the finance charge back to zero. So they don't want to have to do anything. Essentially, nobody has to manually reconcile all these records. It's fully automated, autonomous. And at the end of the day, what we're proving to providers day in, day out, that if you're proactively reach out to patients who need help 
and offer them a way to pay their bills, you will get a much bigger pie, more dollars, faster, without cost. So that what I mean by that is, you know, we increase payment adherence or the amount of collections overall for providers after one month of working with us, right, by 32%. It's incredible for them. Essentially, this is money that they didn't have before. And this is money that was going to go to bad debt, which has its own expenses, by the way, and create really bad experience for their patients. And again, costs to them. So it's a true win-win for everybody here involved. So when we think about, you're pretty keen on unit economics, mentioned that earlier in the conversation. So you're also abstracting, look, healthcare providers are notoriously deficient in their ability to collect payments, right? There's, and so you're abstracting that servicing and collection layer by issuing those payment plans to the end consumers and getting them an advance in exchange for that haircut that prices both cost of capital, again, for listeners and the expected default risk, right? Yes. Loss given default. And however, and also you said, I don't want to be in the business of running call centers. What is the overhead of dealing with the consumer-facing side of the business? Because the provider side is, is really an enterprise sale. It's an enterprise relationship. But then you've got a whole slew of relationships with individual consumers out there. How does that also impact your unit economics? And how do you think about it as CEO? First of all, let's start from our NPS score, because that's something we're really proud about. Our NPS last month was 71. The average in healthcare was 20. This gives you a sense of the bar and how much better we're serving patients comes to experience and overall value. But obviously, we cannot afford to have everything be manual and allow or expect each patient to call us several times when they enroll or have problems. We rely on a ton of automation, a ton of, you know, models that allow us to reduce our costs for servicing those patients tremendously. Because, of course, you can't have hundreds of people answering phones, like I said, and you said, we're not trying to run a big call center here. We do have some people, obviously, but you'll be surprised how small it is, considering the volumes we're running right now. So it's a part of our variable cost, and obviously goes directly to your unit economics. And we invested millions of dollars in servicing technology that is designed specifically for this use case. That means that, you know, some of the things that we needed to design is to not think about this as aggressive collections, a regular loan. We need to think about those people a little differently. And when you think about it, you get pretty amazing positive selection when it comes to the people who enroll in your programs. These are people who have the intent to pay because you don't force them to pay. And these are people who make a first payment. So obviously there's intent, right? They want to pay their bill. They're responsible people, which fits exactly into our thesis of most people are decent. If you just give, give them a break, more people will pay their bills. So it checks out, right? I mean, these are good people. And we treat them differently. That means that if somebody has a problem, we work with them to get them back to current. Obviously, we're trying to make sure that they're, well, whatever the obligation that they agreed to, that they're going to make that obligation and complete it. 
but we're doing it in a very own unique way. It's our, part of our secret sauce. It requires a lot of automation, a lot of predictive modeling, and a lot of understanding of circumstances of patients, but it works out really well. So we're very happy that the investments we made, and we took a big bet here, are working out for us. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And back to your point, with also the demographics sort of evolving and shifting gradually to more digital native type of audiences, the holistic customer experience and high net promoter scores are critical, right? For sure. And that's one aspect where truthfully versus the old stodgy, even in this day and age, everyone's online, everyone has a portal and all that. You just navigating through some of those healthcare providers or health insurance is just very, very difficult to say the least. I'll keep it at that. I want to close on the macro and also leading into, again, risk management. So we're in a higher for longer rates environment. It's pretty clear. We've got interest rates both at the short end of the curve and now long end of the curve retracing back and reflecting that term premium and higher cost of capital. Many are viewing this as ultimately starting to put a lot of strain on consumers. And despite the fact that in reality, it's really the top third of the consumption bucket that drives the economy as far as the contribution to GDP, it's pretty clear that we're in a tighter environment, right? Yes. So you are, at least on the balance sheet side, taking at least one risk, which is you need the payment plans and the recovery on those payment plans to match how well you've priced a haircut on the other side, right? And with shifting macro wins, you might have a, a slight mismatch there, right? In other words, whatever you priced, ex ante might not realized, right? So not necessarily diving into the secret sauce that goes into it, but how do you address that potential mismatch and making sure that you have some cushion there for a macro environment that would be, let's say, deteriorating? Well, Maxime, I'm in a situation that is very unique, Paisen, right? I mean, we change our pricing based on the risk in the market and the risk of the individual. And cost of capital is not just an isolated problem to us. I mean, essentially, if you're, if you're a healthcare provider, when you borrow from your bank, it's more expensive to you as well. So if my cost of capital is more expensive or you, what you borrow from the bank is more expensive, it's kind of a wash, right? So that's not really a differentiator or a problem for you. The trick is, how do you view the market? How do you price things? And I can tell you right now that the yield we paid, a zero interest environment or ZERP in the summer of 2022 was higher than what we pay now. But we shift our pricing dynamically. And when things are good, we bring back yield to the providers. And when things are bad, we adjust to correct it and make sure that we're not mispricing everything. But the good news is that our providers trust us that the movements we make are based on data. And we actually are very open with them about some of the changes we make into our algorithms and how we price assets. So as long as you're transparent, as long as you, they understand that your objective is to pay them as much as possible without losing money, right? So essentially, as long as that is 
the objective and everybody's aligned, there is no problem. But essentially, if you think about it, we control the spread. I mean, we control the pricing because we are the one who are underwriting the patient to their ability to pay. And we also dynamically price the risk. So that puts us in a position that we need to do a good job pricing everything, but we need to be transparent with our providers why we're making changes and the reason for them. I can tell you that in the last few months, we actually increased our yield because we're doing so well. Right, So some of those benefits were brought back to our providers who really appreciated it by essentially saying, wow, nobody on their own accord proactively came back to us and said, oh, we're going to pay you more now. But we're doing it because that's our duty to them. I mean, they're our customers. We're trying to take care of them and trying to take care of their patients. And the models are dictating how we price things. So as long as you're doing your job correctly, I can tell you that we have zero churn, right? I mean, our providers love working with us. And it trusts us to do the right thing. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, again, I, I think the nuance there, and again, to close on this, putting my risk management hat, I think inherently where your edge is and has to remain is to be able to manage that mismatch to your point in dynamic underwriting of the risk there. Yes. It should be dynamic enough to reflect a market condition. And by the way, Maxime, it's a real advantage for us because you can't really buy this data. I mean, bureaus don't have this type of data on medical payments. Nobody's furnishing this data to bureaus. What we're building here beyond an amazing go-to-market motion and a great products with more solutions is a pretty unique data asset that allow us to be ahead of any potential future competition. We, we don't see one yet, but I'm sure there will be. Well, it's been lovely and wonderful to hear your life story and more to come, obviously, but just listening to your background, fascinating and the different set of experiences and what you've been able to draw from. And I think listeners will benefit a ton, whether it's folks who want to start their own business or just curious about the space. So I'm very grateful for your time today. I've really thoroughly enjoyed it. And really looking forward to seeing you guys progress. I know you're in a high growth trajectory right now, so it's going to be super interesting to see how things play out over the next couple of years. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed the conversation with you and not the first time, but it's great. I hope to keep in touch. Likewise. Take care. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.